Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. I'm Philip Dahmen, founding partner at Cherry Ventures and former Chief Business Development Officer at Zalando and founder of Zalando Launch. Philip went from founding a first small startup to joining Zalando as part of the founding team and helping the company to become one of the largest fashion retailers in Europe. Now, Philip is Germany's Investor of the Year 2022 and has joined the ranks of the Forbes Midas List Europe as one of the most influential investors on the continent. In our podcast episode, we talk about how to hire the right talent to fuel your innovation ambitions, how to successfully identify, validate, and scale innovations internally, and some of the hottest trends in the market. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share. Awesome to have you, Philip. What is one thing that I would not expect about you? Hi, yeah, it's great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I guess one of the things that not many people know is that before I decided to become an investor, or even before I decided to become a founder and starting my first company, I thought for a long time I was going to be a musician. So I had a yeah, relatively long career on the violin. I played for over 15 years quite attentively and then also had a classical training as a as an opera singer. So uh, I was, was classically trained and still have to sing some of my friends' weddings. Yeah. That, <laughs> or, yeah, but obviously, I think I picked the right job. That's super interesting. So how did it then come that you shifted into business? You know, I mean, I thought long about what I wanted as a career. And then when I also thought about what do I want to study at university, I felt that, you know, I, I, I loved music, but I wasn't quite ready to make it my profession. So I looked at a couple of different options, studying medicine, you know, I was very much, I don't know what I wanted to do and then ended up studying economics. Uh, which was also something you could do in four years without, you know, having to be a student for too long. And with that, I then at some point had the idea of combining business and mu music. So my, my, my thesis, my final thesis during my studies, I wrote with Sony BMG. And then I actually learned a lot about the music industry and it became pretty clear to me that it is not an industry I wanted to be in, right? It was a time of Jamba and the ringtones and all of that. So. It was definitely um, also the beginning of the streaming guys, right? But still very much sort of Nesper, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Napster uh, territory, right? So a lot of piracy going on. So before the world changed to the streaming model that we had today. So, I, you know, I love the space. I love music. I love the industry. But I then picked a different career path. But interestingly enough, you somewhat then stayed in, let's say, a bit of the art space because right after yeah. your master's, right, you, you founded uh, Tamundo, which was a marketplace for rarities, unique items, collectibles, and you actually right. built that up first. So it, it kind of relates to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I also, I, I love art and um, this was an idea that we developed um, also with some former eBay uh, professionals, we thought about sort of what what uh, what should we do in, in that space when at a time where sort of eBay had lost its original charm, right? Uh, it was going more and more to sort of mass market electronics and 
sort of the original idea of eBay of, of being sort of the, the place to buy special things was a little bit lost. And then we tried to combine this with something that didn't really exist at that time. Um, later, there were companies like Auctionata and today's Sotheby's and Christie's and all of these people are, are doing this, but kind of like more of a live auction format that we worked on. But I think we figured out pretty quickly that yeah, I think we were quite early in the market. It was also very, very difficult to to acquire customers from eBay because, you know, even though eBay wasn't, uh, you know, a beautiful place to buy anymore, it was still the biggest and where, you know, we had all the demand and we had all the supplies. So I think people always sort of tended towards the bigger platform, the platform that had critical mass so fast. It turned out to be a difficult story to build. And, uh, you know, we had scaled the team. We raised a little bit of money. It was obviously also a very, very different time. You know, our Series A back then, I think it was a few hundred thousand euros. So very, very different environment than what we have today uh, in the venture ecosystem in Berlin. But, you know, made, made tons of learnings. And then, you know, it also freed me up at some point when, oh, so as it was clear that it wasn't going to be a, a big success, I started looking around, you know, for some maybe brief moments, I thought, okay, maybe, uh, I, I'll go back, uh, and, and, and join BCG or like a consultancy firm and do something safe. But, you know, I spoke then with Robert and David, they had just started Zalando and they were looking for someone to come to the team and, and, and lead expansion and lead product. So I joined there as a, a part of the extended founding team and then, uh, stayed there until the IPO. So at the, in, on one way, you could say it, Tamundo, our first company, wasn't a success, but if, in hindsight, it actually also prepared me very well for what was after that. And if you think about it also as a VC, I think what we, what we always say is like it's, it's very, very important to be able to relate to the founder story. And I think I've, I've lived uh, a couple of them, and they were also not all successful, right? So this is how startups go some go well and most don't go well and so i think learning that definitely also i think prepared me to become a better investor and before we jump into the Zalando story because i think it's so inspiring that you had this very first venture that you went out there and tried things out straight up your masters you already mentioned a couple of points uh, with regards to learnings that you know not all startups are successful with regards to some marketplaces or bigger marketplaces tend to attract more customers and so on. But how did really this, let's say, initial founding of Tamundo prepare you for what you ultimately experienced at Zalando and at Cherry Ventures? Yeah, yeah, I think that, um, I, I, I think it was less sort of a specific learning. For me, it was more sort of catching the bug, right? So catching <laughs> the, the entrepreneur bug and understanding that I probably never want to be employed anymore in my whole life. I love the fact of being able to build, being able to create, uh, to getting fast feedback cycles on things that you try. And then obviously with Zalando, there was even more the case, right? Because anything you would try, so I was, I was running product back then. And uh, a big part of it was also optimizing the user experience in the, in the online shop and in the mobile apps. So with so much traffic, you would pull a little a string here and they change this, you know, even a button or the color of a button you change, you get immediate feedback. And I love that. I love these sort of fast learnings, fast iterations. And I, I love the pace that's, you know, that's, you know, big part of being in a startup. You obviously mm -hmm. run very, very fast. And sometimes you run in one direction, you realize it's the wrong one. You turn around, you run back in the other one. 
but it's it's all you know a huge learning curve a very steep learning curve and that was something that i totally realized for myself i wanted that and i i never wanted that learning curve to flatten for me and this is why you then joined and i think even at Salando, i mean you had, a, you had a crazy growth trajectory also as a person right you, you joined as a director of business development and ultimately and we we dive into those topics but you also co-founded let's say internal ventures you you well, really and it's, i was kind of always yeah. <laughs> i was kind of always the guy for the new uh for the new project so i started the idea about doing um spot spot sales uh so uh, we started Zalando Lounge. I was the CEO of that. Um, it's also today, you know, hugely successful business. If you look at it by size, it's probably one of the biggest startups in Berlin of the last decade. And, you know, a friend of mine uh, who back then was uh, the, the original CMO of Zalando Lounge is now the CEO and he's doing an amazing job growing the business. It's profitable. And it's really, really amazing to see also from the outside how these kind of things um, develop after my time. And yeah, but same with Zalando, there were some things that we started that weren't as successful. So for at some point we, we, we launched a, a luxury side, which, you know, I think now we're trying it again in different ways, but at that time it didn't turn out to be a big success. Some of the private labels that we tried were, you know, less successful than we hoped. So obviously in hindsight, you only see the big success story. You see the big Zalando that now everybody knows, but I think it is very much the same with every startup, you try, you fail, you get up, you try something else, you know, things work, you do more of it. So it's, 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 I think the same spirit of iterating, of trying new things that, that, you know, you have to keep in a company as long as you can. So even at Zalando, that's our very, very big company. I think one of the core challenges is to actually keep this entrepreneurial spirit, to allow small teams to be agile and very fast and try new things. So that is a big challenge when an organization gets bigger. It's also getting more political. You know, the teams get bigger uh, in the first couple of years. Yeah, the reporting is still done in the kitchen, right? You talk to each other. And then, you know, um, at some point you start writing emails to the whole team and then you do, do all, team all meetings and then everything gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes you lose that, uh, you know, spirit of, of being fast and being a startup. So that's, I think, one of the, one of the learnings also from there is like I'm trying to also translate to the companies we're working with today is like try and keep that keep that idea of running things like a startup as long as you can. How did you figure out which solutions were really, let's say, well fitted for the market and which ones were not quite there yet? And that's the sentiment to Jamry. Yeah, I think obviously you need to start with a hypothesis. Um, so, and it can be a bold one. I think that if you look at the best products in the world, they uh, when they were, were built, like if you look at the iPhone or some of the Apple products, they were not built by looking at similar products and then changing them slightly. They were big ideas, they were bold ideas, and they were about doing things completely different, right? Redesigning the phone. And so you need to have a strong hypothesis. It doesn't always have to be iPhone style or sometimes it, most of the time it's much smaller, but let's say you want to do a relaunch uh, of the product and you want to, you know, create a new app. Then obviously you start with the hypothesis and you think this we believe is going to work based on what we know, based on how we know our customers, based on what we, you know, what, 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 uh, derive from the data that we have. And then the most important thing is you test it. Then it 
it's not a guessing game, but it's a numbers game. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, if you have a lot of traction, if you have a lot of traffic, you you can uh, you can do things like A/B testing. You can build several versions and let them perform against each other overnight. Uh, you have incredible data on what do people, where do people perform, where do people click, what doesn't work, where, do, where things break. So I think you can uh, become extremely analytical at, at that. And at the same time, you also need to look at the numbers but not always 100% follow the numbers you know sometimes it also you know it's sometimes okay to to maybe opt for a version that may not be the best performing but it is serving other purposes right so it is look just maybe it's better for the brand right because it's simply more appealing it's more visual it's more elegant so i think then of course while staying number focused kpi driven there's a different component that sometimes cannot be expressed in numbers directly which basically comes back to this, like, oftentimes you, you look at the BCG metrics and sometimes you have, let's say, lost leaders or poor doctor, every color, keep, still keep them in the portfolio just because, like, it, it has a particular brand reputation. And then that image that you portray out there is ultimately attracting more customers to your other products, which also might help quite a bit. And also reprioritizing resources, right? Because you might have five different internal innovations that, might seem promising, but then ultimately, how do you figure out which one? Is yeah, and the winner strategy looks on. Yeah, you, your strategy needs to be clear, right? Uh, strategy obviously means most often it means not doing certain things rather than doing them. It is always a hundred things going on, and you could always do 20 different things at the same time. But the truth is, you will neither have the budget to do all of them, nor will you have the resources in terms of your time and your team. So it's always about picking your your projects that you believe in the most, and then also interpreting the data that you get as feedback, being very, very fast with regards to your learnings and your feedback cycles. So keep feedback cycles as short as possible, and then act, change course, act again. And I think this is as also a really, really important part of the job as a founder is like doing this type of prioritization, um, because one thing is clear: you cannot you cannot do everything that that, that's sort of on the option field. Right. There's a hundred things to get distracted by, so to speak. And like from this early beginning through a product development, but also through a business development, how did you scale that mentality? How did you make sure that that mentality was actually ingrained in people's head? That they stuck? Uh, I think it, it comes down to, on the one hand, of course, you know, hiring the right people. So really second and third level really trying to shoot for people that have that entrepreneurial mindset they don't drop the pen if there's nothing to do but they rather look for new things and mm. uh, new projects i think that's one thing so you need to on every level have that entrepreneurial dna within the teams and then i think you can what you can also do is you to promote the culture of failing promote the culture where it's okay to do experiments and you're not punished punished if they go wrong, but quite the opposite, right? You promote a culture of failing fast, learning, iterating, doing new things. You give people freedom. You need to give people a lot of responsibility uh, to take on their own tasks. If you start to micromanage people, they will slow down. They will be protective. They will not be the ones that tell you sort of if things go wrong because they are afraid of you interfering or taking away their jobs, right? So I think it is very much 
it comes down to also how you manage a team and um, how you create a culture where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try. And was that clear for me from the beginning, once you caught this entrepreneurial bug that, hey, this is something I have to maintain, or is that something that you also, let's say, through trial and error had to learn over the period where you realize, hey, right now I'm feeling like I'm going down this managerial route that is, say, very fixed, very corporate, and then realizing, okay, this is maybe the, the wrong way. Yeah, there was a little bit of that. I think also, you know, when I thought about do I um, stay after the IPO, of course, you know, Zalando was a very, very different company than when I started. And um, I, I I think that at least in, in many teams, Zalando has managed to keep a very, very strong DNA of, of being entrepreneur. At the same time, you know, for me, it was also clear I wanted to go work in a smaller setup again. You know, we had already started doing some angel deals. So Christian, who was the CMO at Zalando, my, my co-founder at Cherry. So we were sitting uh, opposite of each other at Zalando and, you know, we were doing, doing a couple of angel deals together. You know, we, we had some conversations with founders that came to us and said like, hey, you guys, uh, you know, Zalando is doing so well. Can you help us? Can you support? And that's sort of how the first mm-hmm. small investments happened, like Amorelli and Flixbus and Quandu and, and these kind of uh, investments that we did in the, in the very early days. And, and, and so we, we sort of, we, we met at night with the founders. There was this little cafe at the corner of the Zalando office where we had the pitch meetings like 9 PM or so. And, and we started to, you know, work with founders and, you know, uh, mentoring them a little bit and, and giving advice and then also investing a little bit of money, but very small amounts. So I did this very much uh, angel business angel activity and then Christian and I we really thought about scaling that and and because we we enjoyed what we what we were doing I think we were uh, we were also very good at it like I think we picked some amazing teams amazing founders like some of the uh, companies in that first small cherry portfolio became very very successful um, right also one just IPO Flix Plus is probably one of the next ones in Germany to IPO, right? Then we had a big exit with Quando, with Adhesis, Amorelli, Kitchen Stories. So there were like a lot of very, very cool companies uh, that, that we worked with. And, you know, Christian had a short stint then in, in Düsseldorf at Pick and Kloppenburg. He became their online Vorstand, so their member of the board running the online business for Pick and Kloppenburg. And then shortly after realized that that's probably, yeah, too corporate of an environment for him to thrive. And then we... We were talking, it was like, let's, let's try this, let's do this properly. And that was the beginning of Cherry as an institutional fund. So that was the first time when we also raised outside money hmm. and we then started talking to investors and then we closed our first institutional fund, Cherry 2 in uh, 2016. Really impressive uh, how that, and, and I think it's also, it, it showcased perfectly with staying true to yourself is also ultimately opening up very interesting opportunities that probably back at the time you would have never thought you you would pursue, right? Yeah, and to be honest, I think when I graduated from school, I didn't even know what a VC was. So I think this is something that, and it came to us and it also had to do with, you know, following what we really enjoy doing very much. So it was was really like an organic story, I would say, from, you know, entrepreneur to angel investor to VC. And I think that also is reflected today when you look at the team in Cherry. So almost everyone on the team is ex-startup. So has had some 
operator experience. I think it's something that we pay a lot of attention to because we believe like if you want to work with founders from day one, if you want to be by their side, uh, you have to be able to relate to the roller coaster of building companies, right? That's never a straight line. It's always ups and downs. And at the end of the day, as a VC, you need to be patient and you need to be prepared for a roller coaster ride. And that's, that's why this is so important to us. And what are, let's say, the, the important factors to nail for founders in the early stages um, or in an innovation portfolio? Um, the, the success factors, so, I mean, there's, there's, of course, a couple, right? So I think the most important is the team that you assemble. Um, I think it is very clear that one of the key criteria for a startup to become successful is, is the ability of the founder to bring in top talent besides them. Obviously, the founding team in the first place needs to be good, needs to be strong, needs to have a strong sense of what kind of problem do they want to solve, what is the product that they will build to solve the product, how will they solve it, is their first demand, etc. So all of these things. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to bring people into the company that are better than you in some things, right? So this, this is, you know, I think very common phrase in human resources and talent, which is a hires A, B hires C. So you need to um, be able to attract top talent. And that's sort of the first team that you build inside of the company, the nucleus to, to you know, create all this growth and the DNA of the firm, et cetera, that is so, so important. So pay very, very, very close attention to the first hires that you're making uh, in your startup, um, because I think it's absolutely um, required to have something then that scales, right? Because these people will will also carry on that DNA and then themselves hire better people. Which I think can be actually challenging, especially in this market, in this environment where, let's say, the, the A players or even the A-plus players uh, really have any opportunity open and are so sought out by a lot of different companies, then it might become actually challenging to, to get these people on board and into a company that, at this particular stage of time, is not very known. Yes and no. So I think when I say stellar people, I don't necessarily only mean, you know, people with the with the best logos on the CV. I think you need to look also for the people with the most passion, the people that have an unfair advantage because they, they have struggled, they've experienced the problem themselves. And I sometimes feel like the best founders are often ones that had to deal with some type of adversary during their lives, right? So they're not the straight lines that went to Harvard, typical business school, and McKinsey, then exactly. whatever, right? So and and oftentimes these these are not necessarily the the candidates the big companies pick. But at the same time, of course, you're right. The best people there will always be competition for the best people, right? So I think what you um, there's a couple of things that you can do. On the one hand, uh, as a young company, as a small company, you have the possibility to to share equity with those early employees. It's very, very important. I think that they have a you know, share of the pie and they um, are successful when the company is successful and it's not just a salary because you're not going to be the one that will be able to pay the highest salary for sure. So I think be generous with equity packages, of course, with the right, uh, with the right checks and balances in place. So there has to be a vesting, of course, if people leave early, which sometimes is the case, you know, they get to take home a little bit, but obviously they're not get to keep the whole package. And then I think uh, you have to make sure that uh, people catch fire 
and they trust you, of course, as a founder. So I think this is one of the biggest skills as well within founders to be able to hire people that maybe we always say like punch one or two weight classes above your weight. Right? So try and hire people that maybe a little bit, or at least on paper, they look a little bit too senior or too experienced to join you right now because you're so small and you're sort of pre-product market fit. But to be able to actually get these players that maybe are the right ones for the company in the next stage, but still can relate to the phase that you're in right now, um, these can be sort of very, very pivotal for any business. So try to get these people in as early as possible. And, and, and yeah, you have to, you have to sell the dream, of course, right? So every, uh, every founder at the end of the day also needs to be a very good salesperson. Right. Storytelling 101. Yeah. Otherwise you can't really get people to believe in you. What are other, cause you've mentioned like hiring the team is probably the most important one, but what are other factors that you guys in particular look into? Yeah, I think it needs to be a, a good mix of product skills. Of course, we're looking for people that are highly technical. We are looking for teams that have an unfair advantage of why they would win in a particular space. I give you an example. One of our founders, uh, Ronan, is the founder of Reki. Reki is a company that manages or she basically builds a product for restaurant suppliers so they can uh, um, receive orders and do payments via their platform. It's a very, very simple interface, almost like a WhatsApp that allows sort of restaurants to keep track uh, with the orders and be able to communicate uh, with the supplier base uh, without things getting lost. So it's, I mean, the idea is pretty simple, but the execution was very good. And why was it good? Because uh, Ronan had a restaurant chain before. He actually managed a restaurant called Homos Brothers. So he was selling hummus. And he knew that he was spending, after the restaurant was closed, two hours every day, you know, trying to figure out what's missing, what do I need for the next day? Ah, the guy that delivered the fish didn't deliver the right quantity or the wrong items. And then I have to go back to him. Then this guy didn't pay me. Uh, ah, this, this invoice is too. So there was so much mess that he had to take care of because he couldn't afford more people because obviously it's not a high margin business to run a restaurant. So he was the perfect person to build this product, right? Because he knew exactly what the pain point was. And, and this is the kind of, this is the kind of fun. Right. That, so it, it perfectly confirms the fact that like often the best founders are those that have the issue themselves and then go ahead and like, in order to, to solve that problem for themselves, they go out there they look for a solution and in the process they ultimately end up building a company although the goal what might have been in the first place to really save their particular issue in the first place and realize more people have that problem yeah and i think it's also then the, the next part is then also realizing if you have something and realizing when you don't right so i think a strong team i think they they have this sort of ability to sense product market fit I don't know who said it, but I think it's, it's very true. Product market fit is, is not a number. It's not a KPI. Product market fit is a feeling. So as a founder, you have this sense, okay, something is working. And then do more of that. And if you actually realize, okay, I had this great idea and I really thought it was going to work. And then and I even convinced some of my friends to invest and maybe even some VCs, but it's not working. So that's the moment where a strong founder, she or he needs to then realize, okay, I better do something else. I better change course. And that's also something that I think I didn't like makes us, makes a strong founding team to also, 
um, not just run after uh, the things as long as the money lasts, but identify the point in time where it's also maybe necessary to pivot and to change course. Now, the natural question is, how do you develop such a feeling or sensation? Yeah, I think it's hard, right? Because it's it's so subjective. But I think you can you can look for signals, of course. You, you need to be very, very close to your customer. Um, you need to be very, very close to your product. So I love when founders, it's obviously not 100% scalable, but I actually think it is very, very good and healthy for any company that the founders themselves also do sales. They're out there. You know, it is it is a different kind of feedback when you really uh, need to sell your product and not tell your sales team to do it, right? So I think, you know, over time, of course, and you build up teams and you have to have sort of more processes and more people in place. But at the beginning, I think it is it is very, very important that you understand directly the feedback from your market and see what's working, what's not working. And regarding, you mentioned earlier that you were completely focused on or that you, that you took over business development at Zalando. And what are, let's say, the boundary conditions that you also right now as an investor seeing companies go from Series A to B and so on? What are boundary conditions that companies need to nail internally to continue to innovate? So not 100% sure what you mean by boundary conditions, but I think regardless of size, I think you need to create a culture in which you can you can try new things, right? So you can you can also make bold bets, obviously backed by numbers, right? So it's not about sort of just shooting into the dark and then hoping that you know something sticks to the wall, but it's about like un uh, taking informed decisions and then also you know really look at the data and, 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 and a bit of what I explained a little bit now we ran, ran products and, and look at these kind of results. I think at the end of the day, when a company gets to product market fit and do you have sort of those first customers that start to pay, uh, you have a couple of, the, the pipeline starts to build up. You have this, as a founder, you have this feeling, ah, okay, something is working, something's working. Then is the time to invest and to really start looking into how do I scale this? How do I actually preserve that, you know, small little fire that I've lightened with regards to, okay, there's traction and, and so what, what can I do? How can I add sort of gas to the fire mm. and make it bigger? And that's then also when you have to start thinking about getting teams, scaling sales, getting customer service, getting engineering teams. So I think that's an interesting phase, I would say then that usually comes, I would say, post-Series A. So from seed to Series A, it's all about finding product market fit. And I think once it's there and, you know, there's something that is working and, and then you raise a Series A to scale that. So I think then from there, it goes to that scale. And then Series B, Series C onwards is all about, you know, adding more wood or gas to the fire um, to keep scaling and to be able to try new things. And... What do you then recommend founders, like also right now that you work together with, to to do in that, in that case? You said strategy is important, having a clear objective in mind, but is there certain, let's say, factors or particular KPIs that they need to look into usually to make that call to say it's A, B, or C? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on what type of, project you're looking at right so i think if it is uh you know a new uh, line of business obviously you want to look at customer feedback you want to look at sales kpis you want to look at revenue 
Um, you want to look at growth. So of course, you know, you need to, you need to in general, I think you, sh you need to be very, very data driven, right? Uh, at the end numbers don't lie. And if the numbers are off, then usually something's off, right? And I think this is also something that we try and promote with our companies very early on that, you know, the reporting that we ask from our companies, it's not necessarily something that they do for us. The more importantly, they do it for them to be able to make good decisions, to have clarity on the business, to have clarity on, on also, um, the cash flow on the different business KPIs, right? So I think trying to use, use as much data as you can to, to make these kind of calls. And do you like, is there, is there a standard reporting template? Like what are you looking into? Or is there very, let's say company specific? No, it, it is uh, part of it is obviously standard. But, uh, then there's some nuances, of course, you know, if we invest in a marketplace, uh, we look at different things. And if we invest in a SaaS company or uh, if we invest in an open source project, it's again, very different than if you invest in a retail business, right? So there are differences, but I think the core is more or less. And how do founders know, like first-time founders, they, who have no idea, how do they know which KPIs to look into? Obviously, you need, at the beginning, you need to get a sense of what are the, the key drivers for success of your business, right? If you don't know that, then probably you're not, you're not going to be successful, right? So I think you need to figure that out very, very fast from the very beginning, whether that is with your investors or with mentors or by, you know, understanding the business, but I think this is something that we test also when we do due diligence. If a founder doesn't have a good idea of what are the decisive factors to make or break a certain business, then we're most likely not going to invest. If you look at our portfolio, we, we do have a tendency to also work with ex more experienced founders. So around 75% of the teams that we partner with, the founders have started uh, other businesses prior to the one that we're looking at. But yeah, we also have first-time uh, founders, first-time entrepreneurs. Sometimes those require a little bit more collaboration, a little bit more feedback than the ones that are on their fourth or fifth business. But um, that's fine. Um, if we believe in the team, if we believe in the idea, we, we those, do those kind of investments as well. And lastly, as you just talked about investments, what are the like currently the hottest trends or ideas that you've seen out there? Huh. So that's kind of the... A billion dollar question at the end if we knew the answer to that of course you know we we, we could uh, make all the great decisions i think vc is oftentimes also about being wrong um there's a couple of spaces i'm excited about i think if you are following sort of the recent developments and and uh, ai with open ai and, and and the product they're building how that's going to uh, affect so many different industries we still and i think no VC, you can say that, has figured out what that actually means in terms of new companies being created and which other ones are going to be long-term successful, where is the product going to be really defensible, but just generally how that capability of artificial intelligence will influence different industries. It's very interesting, right? You, you were thinking that, uh, you know, AI would replace the blue-collar jobs first, then the white-collar jobs, and then lastly, it would sort of replace the creatives. What we're seeing right now is actually it's starting with the creatives uh, and uh, there's a lot of interesting discussions around what that means for certain businesses. So that's definitely one topic we're spending a lot of time on. And the other one where, I, where, you know, I spend most of my time in fintech and, you know, we still think that there are so many things that are completely broken in the fintech 
value chain, especially on the infrastructure side and in B2B. So um, whether it's sort of in reconciliation or in payments or embedded embedded finance, uh, these are areas where, you know, me and some of my colleagues are, are spending a lot of time. Christian is super excited about food and uh, the future of, of food, whether that's company that is like InFarm or uh, alternative proteins. Like uh, uh, we have a, a company that produces a carbon-free chocolate, uh, which is super exciting. I actually didn't know how how bad cocoa and cocoa production, chocolate production is for the environment really. And, and these guys are have figured out a way to, to build a really incredible product, which tastes mm. great and is going to really revolutionize how how chocolate products are produced so these kind of things but yeah i think it's 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 exciting to see sort of so many fields of innovation at the end also we are not the ones that will predict the futures 